Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonus, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, just visit Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural. How's everybody doing? Good, I hope. Well, let's go into Cold Case Land, one of my favorite places of the unexplained. And uh, we're going uh, into that series that we have, which is what happened to these cold cases. It's going to be Volume 3. Volume 3. Okay. And this is, um, these are a little bit more recent. All right. And in the, you're going to see that most of them, despite having a lot of possible suspects and um, even um, what you would consider would be a lot of physical evidence and clues and everything as of right now they're still technically considered cold cases and um, you're gonna see sometimes despite what you might see in the shows that everything you know is tied up you know in these uh, uh, shows where everything at the end of the day is you know done you know tied up in a bow and everybody the guilty go to jail and uh the victim is vindicated etc etc guess what it always doesn't not always does it end up that way the first one that we're going to look at is called all roads lead to murder these this is a case that was called by the newspapers at that time the mainline murders uh, it was June 25th, 1979, and an orange Plymouth Horizon hatchback sat apparently unoccupied in the parking lot of a hotel in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Inside the partially open trunk was the nude beaten body of a woman lying on a green plastic bag with her hands tied behind her back. Her name was Susan Reinert, a 36-year-old English teacher at Upper Marion High School and King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Her nose and mouth were bloodied and her right eye was bruised. She had abrasions on both of her forearms, both knees, behind the neck, on the buttocks, between the shoulder blades, and on her ankle. She'd been bound with chains, which caused the abrasions on her back. She was killed 24 to 36 hours before she was found. No clothing, purse, or keys were found with the body. However, there was a rubber, and I'm going to use for the purposes of the video, a rubber marriage aid under the front seat. An autopsy completed on June 25th found she died from an overdose of morphine, but no needle marks were found, which could have been covered, which could have been covered by a bruise. Her ex-husband Ken Renert came to identify her. It was then that authorities became aware her children were missing. The most imminent question was, where was Karen 11 and Michael 10? The hotel was almost a hundred miles from her home. One of the last to see her was a next-door neighbor. 
On June 22, 1979, she saw Reinhardt leaving with her two children a little after 9 p.m. Supposedly, she was due to give a speech before the Allentown chapter of Parents Without Partners and her children accompanied her for a weekend getaway. Reinhardt never made her speech and three days later went by without anyone seeing the mother and the children. The day after the autopsy was completed, her body was released to the funeral home. The police did not want the body to be cremated, hoping to have a more experienced forensic pathologist examine it. Due to a miscommunication with her brother, he had the body cremated. Any further opportunity to find more forensic evidence was gone. On a strange coincidence, if you believe in them, a man named J.C. Smith, 51, was late to a sentencing hearing scheduled for the same day Susan's body was found. He had been convicted on firearms and disorderly conduct charges. He explained his tardiness to authorities by explaining that the friend who was to give him a ride canceled at the last minute. The friend, when questioned by the FBI, denied ever knowing that Smith needed a ride. Smith's phone records reflected he only called his attorney on Friday afternoon and then Sunday night. Reinhardt and Smith were known to each other since he was the principal at the school where she taught. Let's go back to the prequel of this story, which starts in August 19th of 1978. A couple sitting on a curb outside a shopping center pizzeria saw a brown Ford Granada prowling around a parking lot. Then it stopped besides a parked van. Fascinated, they watched as an individual with a hooded mask and a gun in each hand exited the Granada and looked inside the van. The couple notified the police. When they arrived, they saw the car in question heading in their direction. They stopped a driver who turned out to be Dr. J.C. Smith. Inside the car was a 22 Ruger and three other loaded handguns. The strange hood he was wearing was made from the sleeve of a football jersey. He also had bolt cutters, tools to break into cars, two homemade silencers, and two syringes filled with Placidol, a tranquilizer that induces unconsciousness within 60 seconds after it's administered. He also had his daughter Stephanie's social security card. She had mysteriously disappeared with her husband six months before. Smith said the firearms were to scare off people harassing him, and the syringes belonged to his son-in-law, who he claimed was a drug addict. After his arrest, Smith was overheard in a telephone conversation asking someone to remove all the files from the house before police arrived. Authorities staked out Smith's house. Around 2 a.m., a car pulled in, and a man described as a Woody Allen look-alike began to load up boxes taken from the basement into his truck. The man was Smith's friend and a former librarian. The police recovered the following. 818 milligrams of marijuana, vials of contraband pills and capsules, stolen school equipment and reproductions of famous paintings from the school district, four gallons of nitric acid worth $2,000, two silver badges and uniforms, bogus ID cards from the U.S. Army, bottles of drugs such as Valium, Librium, and Placidol, five more homemade oil filter silencers, latex gloves, a pile of blue combs bearing the name of J.C. Smith's Army Reserve Unit, guns registered using a fake ID. The police later found that the ID used was that of a male teacher at Upper Marion High School. His wallet had been stolen from his desk. A library of books with titles the following, The Canine Tongue, Her Bestial Dreams, Her Four-Legged Lover, The Bestial Erotics, and Animal Fever. J.C. Smith believed that dogs could be used as sex surrogates 
that would help surging divorce rates. There were also a lot of swinger publications, both straight and gay, a significant quantity of chains and several locks. 1966, Dr. J.C. Smith, a colonel with the 79th Army Reserve Unit, started at Upper Marion High School. He was married to a woman named Stephanie, and they had two daughters, Stephanie and Sherry. As a school principal, he spent his day locked in his office where strange chemical smells would come from, and Smith was known to speak to attractive teachers about finding work in the porn industry. He also had strange peculiarities, such as bringing trash from home and strewing it around school grounds. He would wash his hands at least 15 times per day and carry on hours-long tirades over the school PA system. Unbelievably, Smith had been a principal at Upper Marion High School for 12 years when he was arrested. It appeared he was a sadist who was into BSDM or BDSM, bestiality and dark pornography. What happened to the Hunsburgers? The Hunsburgers are Smith's daughter and son-in-law. In 1976, Stephanie Smith Hunsberger and her husband Edward moved into her father's home at King of Prussia. Both of them combated heroin addiction. Eddie was on probation for an armed robbery conviction from three years before. Neither could hold down a job, so Stephanie prostituted herself to bring in money. However, they said they wanted to get clean, and both of them enrolled in a methadone clinic, despite having failed at various previous attempts to go sober. On February 25, 1978, they paid a visit to Eddie Hunsberger's parents' home, which lived close by in North Wales. They would usually visit once per week. The pair told Eddie's parents they had to go somewhere but would be back soon. They never returned. After a few weeks, Eddie's parents contacted Smith, who told them the couple moved to California because Eddie found out there was a warrant for his arrest and that they owed money to a drug dealer. Mrs. Hunsberger investigated and found the warrant did not exist. Besides that, the couple left all their things behind, including an uncashed income tax check. In March 1978, when the pair didn't show up for their rehab at the methadone clinic, the staff called Jay Smith. He told them he planned to detox his daughter himself using Placidol and marijuana. Smith also cashed Stephanie and Eddie's welfare checks for six months after they disappeared. The couple have never been seen or heard from again, dead or alive. Eventually, it came to light that all of Smith's crimes were committed on Saturdays, which coincidentally was the day his daughter and her husband were last seen. It turned out that J.C. Smith had been leading a double life for several years. He was linked to two armed robberies of Sears stores. In August 1977, Smith robbed the Sears and Roebuck store in St. David's dressed like a Brinks guard. He walked out with $34,073 in cash. Four months later, again dressed as a security guard, Smith walked into the Sears and Roebuck store in Ashamini Mall. The cashier got suspicious, and when she called security, he took off. In May 1978, J. Smith left his position as principal of the school and took over as a special services coordinator in the administrative offices. The change was due to the fact Smith had been caught shoplifting at various times. When Smith was going to trial for robbery, his wife Stephanie, who was in advanced stages of stomach and liver cancer, lied for him. She testified he couldn't have committed the crime because they were in Ocean City, Maryland. The jury didn't believe her. In May 1979, Smith was sentenced to three and a half to seven years in prison for the Sears robberies. He was also sentenced to two to five year term for his conviction of marijuana possession and receiving stolen paintings in 1978. 
The paintings belong to Upper Marion High School, where he once served as principal. Now, all roads do lead to murder. In 1965, Susan Gallagher married Ken Reinert, an Air Force captain. He served in the Vietnam War as a radar technician, flying B-52 bombers on combat missions. He was awarded several honors, including the Air Force's Air Medal. As an Air Force family, they traveled to cities in California, New York, and Puerto Rico. Ken Reinhardt earned a master's degree, and after his service ended, they settled in Philadelphia in 1971. Susan went on to teach English at Upper Marion High School. By 1974, she was involved in an extramarital affair with William Bill Bradfield, a co-worker and chair of the English department at the school. He was six three inches. He was six feet three inches and a well-known womanizer who pursued ugly women, using their insecurity against them. Susan divorced her husband in 1976. He later married Lynn Hoover, a divorcee with a daughter. They had a son, Wayne. They divorced in 1994. Kenneth Reinhardt died in 2002 from a heart attack at the age of 59. William Bradfield's, Reinhardt's lover, his first marriage was to a woman named Fran, who he met in college. They had two children, Martin and William, born a year apart. When the boys were five and one, Fran left. Then he had a son, David, with a common-law wife named Muriel. In 1963, he got involved with a co-worker, Susan Myers, age 23, an English teacher at Upper Marion High School. They started a 17-year affair. He also had other lovers. Susan Reinhardt was only one of them. She did know about Sue Myers, but did not know about three other women he was involved with. During their involvement, Bradfield denied his relationship with Reinhardt, while she told others they planned to marry. Perhaps the catalyst leading to Susan Reinhardt's murder started with the death of her mother in October 1978. She left Susan $30,000 in cash and a portion of 600 acres of land. By December 1978, Susan Reinhardt gave Bradfield an ultimatum. He pleaded for more time, claiming that Sue Myers was hysterical and unstable. He knew Susan was ready to end the relationship, so he told her he was moving out and in with his parents. Susan Reinhardt told her friend she was marrying Bradfield in the summer of 1979, and they were moving to England. She hadn't told the kids so they wouldn't tell her ex-husband, who would try to stop her from leaving the country with them. Reinhardt tried to purchase a life insurance policy to herself through USAA for $500,000, naming Bradfield as the beneficiary. Her application was denied. Eventually, she was able to secure coverage for $250,000 with a $200,000 accidental death rider. It was a one-year policy payable to Bradfield as her intended husband. The policy covered murder. She excluded her children and brother as beneficiaries. She then asked Jay Smith for a letter of reference in order to secure position in England as an exchange teacher. In the meantime, Bradfield told others that Smith was planning to kill Susan Reinhardt. And if he didn't, then she would be killed by someone else because she frequented in bars. It seemed she had a death wish. He alluded that Susan Reinhardt was involved with a kinky partner who used human feces in their sex rituals. In another version, he said that Smith was a hitman for the mafia and that he was intent on killing Reinhardt because they were having an affair. For some reason, Bradfield failed to do the obvious, which was to tell Susan that her life was in peril at the hands of Smith. By June 1979, Susan had four life insurance policies with accidental death riders, all with Bradfield as a beneficiary. The payoff was about 
and $30,000. Susan Reinhardt and Susan Myers both believed they would be spending the summer of 1979 in England with Bradfield. However, he had already enrolled in a summer program at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It seemed he had no intentions of leaving the United States. Bradfield was also seeing Wendy Ziegler, who told friends that Bill had promised to marry her once she graduated. Rumors circulated, but not just any rumors, down dirty ones that could cost an individual their marriage and or their career. It involved swinger parties between the faculty at the school and satanic worship. The weekend when Reinhardt went missing, Bradfield said he was in Cape May, New Jersey with friends. Was he attending one of the rumored swing parties? During Reinhardt's autopsy, it was found she had sand between her toes. Initially, Bradfield was arrested and charged with theft by deception. It seemed he'd convinced Reinhardt to withdraw $25,000 from her bank account so he could invest it for her. It turned out the investment was for his pocket. While sitting in jail, he filed suit for the life insurance money, which Reinhardt's family immediately blocked through the courts. However, he wasn't the only one involved in the scheme. Wendy Ziegler, one of his lovers, was also arrested. She hid the $25,000 in a safety deposit box for him and removed it the day of Reinhardt's disappearance. She ended up testifying against him in 1981. He was sentenced to two years in prison for those charges. In 1983, Bradfield was charged with Reinhardt's murder. He was convicted of conspiracy to commit three murders, despite the children's bodies not being found. He was sentenced to three life terms. A photo turned up in Barfield's cell, which wasn't developed until 1986. It depicts a crudely carved stone marker that resembles a hooded figure in a wooded area. The location has never been identified. It was found among dozens of boxes that contained Bradfield's belongings. There's a theory the stone marks the place where the Reinhardt children were buried. There were coded writings in the box as well. The Reinhardt children were declared legally dead in 1987. William Bradfield died in 1989. The case became known as the Mainline Murders. Six years later to the day of Susan Reinhardt's disappearance, Jay Smith was arrested and charged with her murder. Reinhardt's colleagues had dubbed him the Prince of Darkness after she disappeared. There was a rumor Smith had burned the Reinhardt children in the school's incinerator. Another one is that the children were alive and had been turned over to the missing Hunsbergers to bring up. During Smith's trial, it was found there was a hair that matched Reinhardt's at Smith's house. Under her body, a comb from Smith's Air Force unit was found. Authorities believe Smith committed the actual killings, but Bradfield had orchestrated them. Smith was convicted and given the death penalty in 1986. Smith's conviction was overturned in 1992 based on improper hearsay testimony. The prosecutors also withheld evidence from Smith's attorney. New evidence was found in a box kept in the lead investigator's attic that could have cleared Smith of one of the murders. It was turned over by the owner of a company paid to clear out the attic for the investigator. Inside the box were notebooks numbered 1 to 23, with number 13 missing. Smith's attorney theorized the missing notebook contained information about a jailhouse informant who could clear Smith of the charges. Smith's attorney said that the officers investigating the crime might have received up to $50,000 before the arrest as a payoff for information offered by author Joseph Wamba, who wrote Echoes in the Darkness, a best-selling book about the case. If Smith eluded conviction on the murder charge, any money he stood to make from the book and movie deals would crumble.
Part of the evidence that got Smith released was obtained by former Patriot News reporter Pete Shellam. According to Shellam's son, he committed suicide six months after J. Smith's death. Smith's attorney argued that Smith could not be tried again for the murder due to double jeopardy. Mr. Smith filed several lawsuits against the state police and Mr. Wamba, accusing them of colluding to convict him falsely, but lost all of them, the last one in 2000. Mr. Smith said he wished a nuclear bomb would drop on Pennsylvania. A lone investigator left on the Reinhardt case said that there was at least one person, never charged, who had a great deal of knowledge about the murder, and this person might know what happened to the children. A co-worker of Stephanie Smith, J. Smith's wife, gave the press her diary. It contained information on sex rings. One headline read, one headline read Sex Ring Linked to Murder, Swingers Group Probed. One of the rumors was that J. Smith was a member of a cult made up of intellectual professionals who were Satanists and sacrificed Susan. Perhaps the children were used in rituals as well, but that cannot be certain unless anyone who was present and witnessed what happened could come forward with information. In his book, The Ultimate Evil of the Search for the Sons of Sam by Maury Terry, he wrote, quote, Specifically in 1979 when Berkowitz was organizing Operation Photo with Lee Chase, he requested that a particular news clipping be sent to Lieutenant Gardner and Felix Gilroy. The article reported that the FBI was probing leads that a Philadelphia school teacher named Susan Reinhardt had been slain in a black mass and the event recorded on film. Until Vinny's letter two years before, we had no idea why Berkowitz wanted that clipping sent out. Now the implication was clear. So basically what we're looking at is... Was this woman just killed by a stranger? Was she killed as they described by Smith with Barfield instructing him and who had tried to implicate him along the way saying that he was a hitman? Or was she part of a satanic ritual and she was sacrificed and her children were as well? Who knows? But like I said, even though there were two convictions related to this crime, it's still considered in a way a cold case because the two children were never found. And unless even DNA that we could say could be recovered since she was cremated, who knows? You know how they could have tied it back to either Barfield or J.C. Smith. And what's incredible is to think that this gentleman, at some point, was a high school principal for several for several years, which is very alarming when you come to think about it. All right, now we're going to go off to another case, and this is a case uh, that occurred in the 1970s in South Florida, and it's known by different names. But we're going to call it, because at one point they, they they believed, but they weren't sure that it was different serial killers. But it looks like possibly there might have been more than one. Anyway, over 45 years ago, South Florida authorities were realizing they might have a serial killer dumping the bodies of young women along desolate roads and canals at the edge of the Everglades. When the first body was found in February of 1975, police could not imagine what was to follow in the months to come. Her name was Judith Osterling, 19. She was originally from Indiana 
and went missing on February 1, 1975, after leaving her job at a massage parlor. Two days later, her fully clothed body was found in a South Broward Canal near Andytown, located on US-27 and State Road 84. She had been severely beaten before being thrown into the water where she drowned. Since she was known to hitchhike, police believe she was killed by someone who offered her a ride. Andytown was located at a lonely intersection ruled by one traffic light. It started out as a roadside shack in 1947 that only served coffee. By the 1970s, it had evolved into a gas station, motel, bar, and restaurant that served mostly truckers and fishermen. It would become an area favored by a stealthy killer who used it as a dumping field where the weeds, humidity, and animals could make his victims disappear or become unrecognizable. Then, Barbara Davis Stevens disappeared on February 12th. Her father was a president of the Anchor Electric Company. She'd been estranged from her husband for two months and moved back to her parents' home. She said she was going to visit a friend in Coral Gables. Her 1973 Chevy Camaro was found in the parking lot of the Gold Triangle store at Dadeland Mall. The keys were still inside the unlocked vehicle. There were traces of blood on the steering wheel. Stephen's body was discovered on February 20th in a wooded lot behind a grocery store at Southwest 87th Avenue and Sunset Drive, Miami. She was clothed except her slacks were pulled down. She was stabbed various times in the abdomen. Police found traces of grass, dust, and blood inside her vehicle, which indicated her car was used to transport her body before it was abandoned. Unlike Osterling, Stevens had been killed in Dade County, which was south of Broward County. However, it was a drive that could take that would take less than one hour to complete. On April 9, 1975, was the last time Arietta Marie Rennie Tinker was seen alive. She was 17 and married on October 12, 1973, when she was 16 years old. Her husband dropped her off at 1 p.m. at the Hippopotamus Lounge on Hollywood Beach. She told her husband she would get a ride later, and she was last seen at the Lums restaurant near Young Circle, barely a mile from her home. Three days later, her body was found in the Snake Creek Canal, close to where Osterling's body was dumped two months before. She supposedly drowned, and her body did not display any signs of foul play, but it could not be explained how she ended up so far from where she was last seen without a car. Next was Nancy Lee Fox, 19, who came to South Florida from New York in 1973. She worked at night as a waitress at a taco restaurant. She was last seen walking home alone on June 13. It was reported she was hitchhiking. Nancy's body was found in the same canal as Osterling, which ran parallel to U.S. Highway 27. She'd been hit with a blunt object at the back of her head. Then she was choked before being thrown into the water. She was nude and had been sexually assaulted. Barely a week later, on June 19th, friends Barbara Schreiber and Belinda Setterauer, both 14, were found on the banks of a Broward County Canal only a few miles north of Andytown. Their bodies were discovered by a family fishing at the waterway. The girls were supposed to spend the night at a friend's house, but they never made it there. The last person who saw them was a teenager who gave them a ride on his motorbike. This was at Route 441 and Hollywood Boulevard. Both had been shot with a 45 caliber firearm and due to the blood evidence at the scene, it was believed they were killed there. The girls were classmates at Attucks Middle School 
and later police found out they would lie about going to sleep over at a friend's house in order to go out without their parents' knowledge. Soon the police were looking for a young couple who rented an automobile who they believed were connected to the murder. A 1974 Bay Chevrolet Vega was left abandoned at the Airway Rent-A-Car. The cleaning crew found a spent 45 caliber bullet on the floor. The police determined the girls had been shot with a similar weapon. The auto agency said that the car had been rented for only one day by a young woman from out of state. A well-dressed young man accompanied her. The car was not returned when it was supposed to, which would have been Thursday. Instead, it was left abandoned at the lot on Saturday in the pre-dawn hours. Police found grass and weeds caught in the undercarriage of the auto, which matched the growth where the bodies were left. The car had also been driven 600 miles. Inside noisemakers and a straw hat from the rec bar popular bar at the castaways were found. Wherever this lead went, it did not produce the killers of the schoolgirls. Before the month was out, Robin Robin Losh, 14, was found in the same watery grave as Belinda and Barbara. On July 10th, one of her arms was spotted sticking out from the weedy canal waters. She'd been at a grocery store and her parents reported her missing when she didn't return from classes at Stranahan High School. The autopsy indicated she had drowned, but without a vehicle it would have been difficult for her to reach the spot. Marijuana was found in her jean pocket. Schreiber, Zetterauer, and Lodge were left about 200 yards from where Fox and Osterling were discovered. It appeared this waterway, located on the western edge of Broward County, close to the Everglades, had become the dumping ground for a predator who hunted further east among the businesses and suburbs. Ronnie Gorland, 27, lived in Hallandale, Florida. On July 22, 1975, she was supposed to be visiting her mother at Parkway Hospital. However, she never arrived. She had gone shopping at the 163rd Street Shopping Center in North Miami Beach. Her nude body was discovered the next day in the Graham Canal at Northwest 138th Street and 105th Avenue in Miami. The cause of death was drowning, but the coroner found she'd been sexually mutilated. There were bite marks on her breasts. Her rental car was found in the shopping center parking lot with slashed tires. Elsie J. Rapp, 21, also lived in Hallandale. She was holding down a summer job and planned to return to her home in Flushing, New York in September. She went shopping on July 30th. Like Ronnie Gorlin, her rental car, a yellow Vega, was found with a flat tire. Her landlady called the police when she failed to return to her apartment. She also called Elsie's parents to tell them of her disappearance. A road worker found her body in the same canal as Ronnie Gorlin by the Capaletti Rock Pit on Northwest 138th Street. She drowned, but she had also been struck in the head and sexually abused. Due to decomposition, it was difficult to determine if her genitals had been mutilated like rap. Police believed the killer would offer to help the women after deflating the tires. The cause of death for both women was listed as drowning, but a knife had been used on both of them. The women discovered in Broward County had been either shot or bludgeoned in the head, most had been stripped of clothing and had been sexually molested. Even though the locations where these women were last seen was in two counties, there was only a distance of approximately seven miles from the 163rd Street Shopping Center in Dade County and Young Circle in Hollywood, Broward County. It wasn't until the murders of Rapp and Gorlin that police identified a methodology the killer was using to lure his victims with and they wind their investigation to include the other murders as possibly the handiwork of the same individual. Both of the women had been stripped of all clothing except for a single item. The rest of their clothing was never found, and it was theorized the killer could have kept them as a fetish. 
The Dade County Medical Examiner described where the perpetrator was probably in his 20s, white, attractive, well-dressed, and would be seen as an all-American type. There was even a possibility he was married. However, all these traits hid that he was a sexual psychopath. Detectives, however, speculated he was a loner, a drifter, and a sexual deviant. They even looked at four similar killings in 1974 where the women were victims of the same person. Women who frequented the 163rd Street Shopping Center were warned about accepting help from strangers posing as good Samaritans, especially they found one of their car tires was deflated. On August 17, 1975, Esmeralda Chaviano Gordon, 24, a school teacher was discovered dead on a dirt road close to a canal at Southwest 56th Street and 135th Avenue in Miami. She was shot in the forehead. She was fully clothed and had not been sexually assaulted. Her husband was Seth Gordon, the administrative aide to then-Senator Kenneth Myers. The morning of her death, the couple had gone to a garage sale, and in the afternoon, Esmeralda decided to go shopping on her own. Her car was not discovered until a few days later. It was abandoned at the time at the same garage that served the 163rd Street Shopping Center in North Miami, where Rapp and Gordon's autos were found. The vehicle had been parked there only two hours before it was reported to police. An amateur sleuth who had heard of the murder, including those of Rapp and Gorland, decided to see if the vehicle would be found at the parking garage. He was right. There was dried blood in the front passenger seat and door, enough to lead police to believe she had been shot inside the auto. They could find no other fingerprints that did not belong to her or her husband. Could the publicity about the murders have forced the killer to change his M.O.? Later on, police believed she was not targeted by the same killer and at one point looked at her husband, Seth Gordon, as a prime suspect. But no arrests were ever made concerning her murder. On October 10, 1975, a skeleton was found in the Everglades covered by muck and grass. The police, unfortunately, were familiar with this stretch of land. During the past summer, the corpses of four women were discovered only a few miles from the spot. This was the tenth murder. An autopsy found she had been shot in the head. She was killed 30 to 90 days before the discovery of the remains. She had long brown hair, stood 5 feet 7 inches, and the medical examiner estimated her age at 15 to 25. Her wisdom teeth hadn't come through, so it was believed she was a teenager. Molars in the upper and lower jaw had been extracted. She had no cavities. The police believed she had been killed elsewhere, stripped of her clothing, and then buried in a shallow grave. She was to remain a Jane Doe. Marlene Kingery Annabelli arrived in South Florida on October 17, 1975, for a week-long getaway. She disappeared on October 22nd. Three days later, in a desolate field off Southwest 163rd Avenue and Griffin Road, the smell of death announced where Marlene's body lay hidden by pieces of wood. A motorcyclist saw part of her body among the tall weeds before he ran off to notify police. The petite young woman was strangled to death by a rope and had been pummeled savagely in the abdomen. She was fully clothed and there was no sign of sexual assault. She had no known enemies or led a risky lifestyle. She was a secretary who lived in Pennsylvania. The police had no leads as to who killed her. Her estranged husband came from Pennsylvania to identify her body, but couldn't do so because of the state of decomposition. However, dental records and fingerprints confirmed her identity. All ten murders were unsolved, and only two were definitely connected, Gorlin and Rapp, who were found in the same canal south of the Dade-Broward County line, and whose cars were abandoned in the same garage with flat tires. 
Mary Coppola, 15, a sophomore at South Dade High School in Homestead, Florida, disappeared September 1975. She lived with her parents and six siblings. She didn't come from a broken home, was an average student, and this would have been her first year in high school, which many teenagers mark as an important event in their lives. Mary was an introvert. However, based on interviews with some of her friends, she was leading a double life. She had run away in August and founded a nearby Burger King by her mother. Her parents had sought counseling for her, but perhaps they didn't know the extent of Mary's insistence of putting herself at risk. While she attended Redland Middle School, she was seen with a man in his late 20s, who often picked her up from the school bus stop and dropped her off at school. Not only was the age was a difference in age a problem, but it was reported he was a drug pusher at the school as well. Her skeletal remains were found on January 1, 1976, by hunters in an area close to the Everglades, at the county line between Monroe and Dade. Her bones were dispersed, and she lay about 20 feet from a canal with a road that ran next to it. There were no signs of trauma to her remains. It was estimated she died shortly after her disappearance. There was no way to run a toxicology test to verify if she had died from an overdose. It seemed the holiday season had rung in with the discovery of human remains, which further complicated the efforts to detect of all these crimes with the handiwork of the same person. Only a week before Mary's body was found, the hacked remains of two men were discovered. The first was a white male in his 20s. Two boys fishing in the cooling canals adjacent to a Florida power and light substation found a pair of glasses and a watch in a pool of blood. The body was mutilated. The hands were cut off at the wrist, and according to the Broward County Medical Examiner, there were several deep gashes on the head, perhaps in an attempt to decapitate him. Then in Dade County, close to where Mary Scopola's body would be found a few days later, a man's headless body was discovered in a canal on Card Sound Road. In December 1975, the decomposed body of a younger woman was discovered in an area of Broward County known as Sunshine Ranches. The medical examiner estimated he was killed in October. She was white, had brown hair, stood 5 feet 5 inches, and weighed approximately 120 pounds. Because of the extent of decomposition, the examiner couldn't determine how she was killed and whether she was raped. She was fully clothed, but her pants were ripped. Like others, she was left about 35 feet from a gravel road. And like the Jane Doe found in the Everglades in October, the police did not link these murders to the others. She also became a Jane Doe. Seven months later, the man found by Florida Power and Light substation was identified as Jeffrey Warner, a former student at the University of Miami. He had disappeared in September 1975, two days before he was set to face narcotics charges in New York. He was shot three to four times before his body was found, indicating he'd been hiding out for three months. Police believed he was in over his head with members of a drug ring. His, his case remained unsolved, though. The twelfth and final victim, according to authorities, was Michelle Andrea Winters. She was 17 and had dropped out of high school. She worked as a waitress for three weeks before she was fired. Michelle had moved out from her parents' house and in with an older sister, Joanne, then left there once her sister went back to her college in northern Florida. Her parents wintered in Fort Lauderdale and then went to Toronto during the summer. Shortly before her disappearance on December 30th, Michelle was described by her few friends as depressed and said she wanted to join the Navy. Two men gathering firewood found her body in Snake Creek Canal on January 11, 1976. This was a wooded area off Pembroke Pines in western Broward County, close to the notorious U.S. 27. She was wearing a shirt, jeans, but her shoes were missing. The Broward County Medical Examiner determined she'd been strangled with a strap of her handbag, 
A scarf was tied around her throat as well. She'd been in water two or three days. There was no evidence of sexual assault. She was still wearing her ring, bracelet, and gold chain, which was identified by her father. Michelle, unfortunately, was known to hitchhike around town, and her mother frequently warned her against doing this. No doubt she went willingly with her killer. At some point during the investigation, authorities looked to find a pattern from other states. Police found that up to 33 murders in California, Washington, and Utah were very similar to the Dade Broward murders. The women were all white, under 30 years of age, had long hair and pierced ears. A single item, jewelry or clothing, was left on each body. All victims were dumped near or in bodies of water. Twelve California murders that fit the same pattern ended in December 1973. Then nine murders were committed through mid-1974 in Washington. The next state to experience a rash of murders was Utah, then Colorado, which ended in March of 1975. Could this be the same perpetrator that made his way across the country? Only the murder of Judith Osterling was solved. In October 1975, Sue Jane, a.k.a. Tiger Sue Walter, 22, confessed to murdering Osterling on January 25th. She operated the massage parlor where the victim worked. She said her boyfriend, Clarence Deacon Carnival, 28, took Osterling to the C9 Canal. She described where he beat her with a rock and fists, then he bound her hands and feet and threw her in the canal after raping her. The motive was because Osterling had resisted Carnival's sexual advances. She said fear of her boyfriend had made her keep quiet about the murder. In a strange twist, Carnival was shot to death on June 13th in the backyard of his home in Miami. He had been arrested several times on felony charges, including a charge of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. His record stretched all the way back to 1964. His murder was never solved. So obviously, the excuse that she gave, <clears throat> that she was afraid of her boyfriend, really didn't hold water because he was killed about five months after the murder was committed. Sue Jane Walter was sentenced to 15 years in prison after pleading guilty to a charge of second-degree murder. She had helped Carnival rape and murder Osterling. Despite the resolution of the Osterling murder, questions still persisted if there was more than one person murdering women in South Florida. Was this the same perpetrator who was responsible for the death of Joanne Weiss, 14, who was found dead in 1973? Her final resting place was a watery grave in a canal by the Miami International Airport. Police believe she was picked up, raped, and murdered as she walked along 79th Street, well known as a stretch where prostitutes cruised along Biscayne Boulevard. The Dade County Medical Examiner believed there was enough links between the cases to indicate the same perpetrator. Mental health professionals described the profile of a man who had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, lover, or wife. He was possibly schizophrenic and would increase in violence as time passed. Or, perhaps this was a sane psychopath who knew when to quit town and move on to other states, where the police had to start from scratch. He knew already how much time this could buy him before authorities suspected they were searching for the same devil, but by different names, such as the Flat Tire Killer, the Canal Killer, the Tooth Fairy Killer, and the South Dade Serial Killer. Did he indeed have the last laugh? And possibly, even though there appears to be a difference in the way these women were killed, considering that they were always, their bodies were left uh, very close to county lines. It makes you believe that he understood, especially back in the 1970s, that once you left the body in a different jurisdiction, it was a different police department. It was a different county, or if there was a local police department for that city. 
And back then, sometimes these police departments did not share information. In other words, if it didn't happen in their jurisdiction, it wasn't their problem. So chances are that this was somebody who used that to his advantage and would purposely leave these bodies just over the county line to go ahead and throw off the scent of what he was doing. So, again, I hope you liked this last episode of what happened to these cold cases. And until then, thank you for coming every week and joining me. And you are all wonderful. Take care.